Today's lectionary text struck me as strange for the fifth Sunday of Easter. Jesus has just finished the Last Supper. He's washed their feet. He's given them a new commandment to love one another. He has predicted Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, and he is about to leave them. Where I'm going, he says, you cannot follow right now. It's a somber passage, and the words sting. What do you mean you're leaving? Where are you going? Why can't we come? What are we supposed to do without you? I'm imagining during this time of sheltering at home that we can relate to those kinds of questions. What's going to happen to our families, our jobs, our church, our nation? So Thomas asks the question that I suspect a lot of us are asking not right now. How can we know the way forward? My, uh, my entry into ministry uh, was largely due uh, to uh, Ben Alford. Uh, ben was a very, very close friend, a mentor. Um, pretty much everything I knew about being a minister, I learned from him. If I had a problem, I went to Ben. If I needed advice, I went to Ben. When Ben died some years ago, I found myself in some ways a little lost. I didn't know exactly how I was going to keep going without him. He was something of a North Star for me. So I understand Thomas's question. What are we supposed to do now without you? What I think Thomas wants is what I think all of us want if we're honest. We want what you might call a GPS kind of faith. Five point plan, the 12 steps, the 10 commandments. If you will do A, B, and C, I guarantee you will arrive at D. And how does Jesus respond to that question? Don't let your hearts be troubled. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you know me, then you know God. No roadmap, no PowerPoint presentation just himself. Still, it's a pretty tall order to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. How can we not be troubled? What makes anyone think we can control when our hearts become troubled? If you had asked me 40 years ago to describe what the Christian faith looked like, I would have recited a whole list of black and white truths as confident as a kindergartner rattles off her ABCs. It has been a shock to me over these 40 years that I've spent most of that time shedding a lot of those kinds of ideas. To discover that to know God, I had to first unknow a bunch of stuff that I believed was true. Sort of like Mark Twain once said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you, it's what you know for sure that just ain't true. It was almost like shedding skin like a snake. I've come to call those discarded ideas imposter gods. Some of them were forced on me, some of them I inherited, and some of them I conjured up all on my own. Allow me to introduce a few of them to you. I suspect you might recognize them. There's the imposter god who bargains and seals the deal. 
If I'm good, if I behave, then I'll be loved. If I mess up, then I'll make God angry. If I work hard, I'll earn forgiveness. If I'm the best, I'll earn blessing. This is the God of the divine transaction. And I find comfort knowing the rules today. Then there's the God whose omnipotence guarantees my safety. This is the God who stops the virus, diffuses the bomb, deflects the bullet. The God who conquers depression, ends anxiety, eliminates terror, and postpones death. The God who explains everything that goes wrong to my satisfaction. Then there's another God who controls everything. The God who locates parking spaces at Christmas when I can't find one. The God who manipulates traffic lights so that I don't get stopped. The God who promises me good health and happy endings and controls world history. And then there's a God who makes faith easy by providing quick answers as if I were looking them up in the glossary of a Volvo manual. The God who erases all doubt, who comes when I call and leaves when I dismiss him. The God who parts all the clouds and bathes me in a warm glow. These are just a few of my imposters. I've had others and I'll have more. Layer by layer, I've worked to try to peel them back. But here's the hard part. These imposters don't look or sound sinister. They look lovely. They speak kindly. They make attractive promises. They pretend to make the world a less scary place, more manageable. They play tricks on my tired mind and they prey on my deepest fears and desires. And I'm afraid I'll starve if I let them go. And so I pray to God to help free me of these imposters. It's a tall order right now not to let your heart be troubled. But the fact is, when Jesus asks me if I know the way, if I know where he is going, the truth is I do know. And so do you. We know Jesus. We know his life. We know his love. We know his sacrifice. We know his death. We know his rising. Maybe the way isn't the way we imagined it was going to be. The way is demanding and it's precarious. The way takes time. But we can be on the way with confidence, not because we are such experts at finding God, but because God has always found us over and over and over again. In my father's household are many dwelling places. If you've been with me at a graveside, you might have heard me use this passage in order to engage a family. I tell them that I'm charmed by the idea that God's love for me is so intimate that God has carved out a place just for me. Now that passage speaks to me, especially because I grew up in a large family and I didn't have my own room until several older siblings moved out. So when I hear Jesus say there's a room waiting just for me, I feel truly loved. And then I'll ask the family, what do you think your loved one will have in their room? And suddenly they begin to speak out about their loved one having photos of the grandchildren 
or books that they've loved or a guitar that they love to play, whatever they knew was special to their loved one. And you can see in those moments, they begin to smile and they begin to have a sense of calm and they begin to feel a sense of well-being. And the well-being is that they begin to wrap their hearts around how much their loved one is loved and being cared for until they can be reunited. That's the promise called home. Today, as we celebrate Mother's Day, we are reminded of home. And I hope your experience of home was one that was filled with love and respect. That's the image that God wants us to have of home. The other thing I take from this, pack, this passage is that the kingdom of heaven has room for everybody. All that is required for you is to be on the path, on the way, and to simply say yes to the invitation. I need to offer a word here about pluralism and religious tolerance. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, that passage has been used many times as the epitome of how exclusive the Christian faith is. Non-Christians need not apply. I think there's a misunderstanding about this reading. I do not believe that Jesus used the phrase, I am, as a personal pronoun speaking of himself. If you read through the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. Statements about how Jesus relates directly to God and how God identified to the Israelites and to Moses. Remember, when Moses was asked to go to the, the Pharaoh to deliver the plagues, Moses asked God, if Pharaoh wants to know who's making these demands, who should I tell him? And God simply replies, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. And now in John's gospel, there are seven I am statements. Statements that connect Jesus intimately with God, that God is the path, God is the way. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm a firm believer of being tolerant of other religious traditions. I think when Jesus says in the household of God, there's a lot of room, I think it would be presumptuous of me to tell God who or should not be on the guest list. But that doesn't mean that I believe that all paths are equal. I don't. It has always bothered me when someone says something like, we're all just trying to get to the same place. All religions are alike. In some places in the world, little girls are so undervalued compared to boys that it is admissible to kill them. The religion that underpins such an act isn't trying to get to the same place I'm trying to get. In some places, there are acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing where even brothers are turned against brothers and women are treated as slaves. The religion that underpins those acts, that's not a religion that I'm trying to aspire to. In some places, it's not just okay, but it's encouraged to kill people of other faith groups men, women, children, by strapping on a bomb and walking into a crowd to blow them all up. 
In some places, it's okay to put on a white sheet and kill or terrorize people who look different than you. In some places, entire populations within the boundaries of their own country suffer severe human rights violations with no hope for justice. The religions that serve as the foundation of those and other acts of atrocities are not the religion of Jesus. But having said that, I believe that Jesus is the I am, the way, the path. And I believe in, in God's house, there is room for anyone under any religious banner that follows the way, the way of love, the way of forgiveness, the way of respect, the way of compassion. Thomas asks, how can we know the way? But we do know the way. We know Jesus. I was driving this past week past an apartment complex that had a great big banner on the side. And the banner said, if you lived here, you'd be home already. I've seen that banner on apartment complexes from time to time. But this week it really struck me because of this passage and getting ready for today's sermon. What I want to say to you today is stop worrying about whether or not you're going to make it home. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. Follow the way. Follow the path. And when someone asks you why you're doing it, tell them I am told you to. All of this is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.